Hi, everyone. I'm Pamela Marsh, president of the First Amendment Foundation, and this is Open Government in Florida. In today's episode, I'm talking with Sheriff Mike Chitwood. Sheriff Chitwood is my current favorite among the 67 Florida sheriffs for his strong positions on transparency and his approach to policing. At a time when I would say both transparency and policing are under attack. He's been in law enforcement for more than 30 years and the elected sheriff of Volusia County since 2016. I'm so honored that you said yes to being here with me today, Sheriff. Thank you. Pam, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And it's an honor to finally put a name to a face uh, from our emails that were going back and forth and reading a lot of the articles you were quoted in with First Amendment issues, especially with the COVID-19. Well, I think you and I are on the same page. So let's jump right in. When you were police chief of Daytona Beach, you were the first in Florida to require your officers to wear body cameras. Tell me why you made that decision. It was right after uh, Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, we obviously were just learning about this body body camera technology. So at a staff meeting, I asked my training people to contact Axon uh, and ask them if they would be willing to partner with a police department for research purposes. And Axon agreed. And I, I can't remember the number of cameras. They may have gave us five or 10 cameras to let us experiment with it. And that's how it started, that um, uh, we started looking at maybe high liability, maybe the canines and the motors folks having it. Uh, But really we started to see the benefits for patrol. So we started off with 50, I think. We have 250 sworn. Uh, We started out with 50 and then I was able to eventually get it to where not only did every patrol officer have it, not only did all of our canines have it, but I equipped our SWAT team with it as well. So that that took probably about three years. It's probably around 2015, 2016, where I could say just before I left, we were 100% covered. Wow. So you were on the cutting edge of that. And even with your SWAT team, because that's that's kind of critical that they're going into people's houses with a body camera on. Did you find that it made a difference in officer conduct and accountability? It, it did. It, it Right off the bat, uh, it, the transparency, I believe, for all the hard work we did for community relations with the minority community, I think the body cameras were the single biggest move toward having that transparency and that open dialogue with the community. Because you can't argue when you're watching the, the whole footage. It's not a snippet. It's the entire uh, the entire incidents captured on camera. And what, what, we, what I saw was that it protected the officers and it protected the community because the community knew that they were being recorded during an encounter. It's not a panacea. But it was it was a huge leap forward in those issues for us. And and our policy was really straightforward. And actually, my officers developed the policy. I didn't. You know, I, when it was out there in experimental space, I had officers and supervisors come to me and say, hey, our policy should really be simple. Anytime you step out of that car, that camera needs to be activated. And then they, we put it even further back when we said, you know what, when you receive a call, and you're in route, turn it on. 
because how many intersection crashes are we involved in where we say we came to a stop? The person says, no, you didn't. And somebody gets T-boned. So that's eventually where the policy came to. When you get a radio call, turn it on. And if, if it's a self-initiated activity, turn it on when you step out of the car. And as a former prosecutor, I would say that film footage is clearly the best evidence, you know, the best evidence rule in court. Either way it goes, that's going to be the very best history of exactly what happened. Exactly, exactly. The First Amendment Foundation has been part of a legal case brought by a police union here. And the police union argues that on-duty officers involved in violence that results in a citizen's death are victims under Marcy's law. The union argues that the officers are victims, which would mean their identities would never be disclosed to the public. The First Amendment Foundation and some other organizations intervened in that lawsuit to argue that Marcy's Law should not shield officers' identities when they're on duty because they're public servants and there would otherwise be no accountability. So our argument is Marcy's Law should not apply and allow on-duty officers to claim that they're victims of crimes. How do you feel about Marcy's Law being used to shield the identity of law enforcement officers on duty? I agree 1,001% with your statement when you read the question. Marcy's Law was never intended to cover police officers in the course of their duty or shield them in any way possible. It was meant to protect victims. That's what the intent was. And I know recently a judge in Tallahassee, I don't know if it was the first DCA or not, ruled in favor of uh, basically law enforcement administrators in the community saying that, no, that Marcy's Law does not apply to police officers in the performance of their duty. I've been fortunate here. We did not have that issue. It has not arisen here. But I think that the judge's ruling, even though I know it's being appealed, uh, has sent a message loud and clear to law enforcement that, that you know, that why are you perverting the, the purpose and the intent of this good law to protect the victims? Right. And I remember when the law, when the amendment was being considered by law enforcement, it was more to encourage victims to come forward, um, victims of domestic violence or, or child molestation, um, that their identity would be kept secret. And more importantly, perhaps, that they had an opportunity to participate in the criminal trials and proceedings. Um, so you're right. The intent of Marcy's Law had nothing to do with um, officer-involved shootings and, and shielding that from the public. What would you say to law enforcement officers who want to be shielded as victims under Marcy's law because they fear retribution from the public? Uh, you're in the wrong line of work. You know, we are paid by our taxpayers. We are paid to represent our community. We drive around in a big marked police car that says police or sheriff on it. We wear these uniforms and now you want to hide your identity. Well, the only way you want to hide your identity is if you, you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. If you're out there doing the right thing day in and day out, you're, you're fine. I've been doing this for 33 years, and death threats become part of anybody who does their job in law enforcement will tell you at some point in time they've had their life threatened. You take extra precautions, and you do your job day in and day out. I know that you've been a leader in community policing, and that was something that I also worked hard on as a prosecutor. And um, you've put officers out on bike patrols. Tell me about why those get closer to the people policies really matter. 
you know, a lot of that, uh, my philosophy stems back to when I was a Philadelphia police officer. I spent 18 years there. Um, and a lot of the bosses that I worked for were huge community policing components in the fact that their definition of community policing was really simple. Our job is to solve problems. That, that's what they thought and, and, they, and I believe was that. And you can't solve a problem if you're sitting in your car with the windows rolled up and the radio on and the air conditioner blasting. It's not going to work. And if you go to the churches and the schools and if you shop in a local business, have lunch in a local business, walk down the street, you're going to be surprised at, number one, how much more respect you have in the community, but how much better you can do your job. Because people are going to learn that they can trust you and tell you things and they can count on you and come to you with problems. So that was what the essence was. And I've always taken that with me and try to preach that, that, you know, it takes a minute to be kind. It really takes a lot of effort to be a knucklehead. <laughs> if you're kind, it's a couple kind words and move on. But you really got to get up the energy, like I said, to act, to act in some ways to defend the public. So why waste that energy on that? Sheriff, you were just reelected in June because you had no qualified opposition. That must mean that folks like what you're doing. You've gotten rid of a bunch of officers that weren't cut out for the kind of fair policing that is your model, and you've embraced transparency and straight talk. Does such a confirming election like that give you confidence to do even more? That, that's a great question. It does, but you also want to be aware of the uh, the effect that presidents have had in our nation's history when they've had a landslide victory in a second term. You tend to think you're invincible and you tend to uh, not be tethered to, to the real foundation where you come from. So I'm cognizant of that as we're moving forward with some of our initiatives to try to stay true to what got me here and, and hopefully will continue in my future. Um, an example of that is we, we're trying to turn the, um, the paradigm of how we train law enforcement officers in the state of Florida on its head. You know, right now, how it works here in Volusia County is you go to the Daytona State College's police academy, and then we recruit you in that academy. I hire you. I bring you in. And after you've received 770 hours of training from the state, I provide you with another 500. That model is not working correctly. We are petitioning uh, FDLE and the state of Florida to allow us in the Volusia County Sheriff's Office to run our own academy. We have 40 openings. I think that once we screen you and test you, I can hire you immediately as a deputy recruit sheriff. You automatically are drawing a salary and benefits, and we start to train you. We're going to have our academy is going to be about 1,100 hours in the culture, in the policies and procedures, in our community, and you're invested from day one. At the start of the COVID crisis, you and I were both pushing the Department of Health for transparency when it comes to accurate data on the coronavirus. And you had a strong message about why you needed that data for first responders. Do you remember that and what you said at the time? Yeah, I, re I remember clearly um, we were at a press conference. I think it was March 16th or March 13th when the governor and the president announced a national and a state of emergency. 
And after that announcement, after that press conference, I sat down with my staff and said, listen, there's got to be a way to protect first responders. And from what I'm hearing from the Department of Health, though they will be notified of the addresses of folks who test positive or are or may test positive or under quarantine. So we got with the Department of Health and said, here's what we want. I don't want names. I don't need anything with a person's identity. What I need is addresses so that I can load those addresses into our computer-aided dispatch system. In Volusia County, I oversee dispatch, and dispatch is one of the few in the state that does all three disciplines, police, fire, and EMS. So I want to give us a fighting chance. If we get dispatched to 123 Main Street for domestic violence, and that call as that address, we'll put out 123 Main Street code 19, meaning the responders need to put on the appropriate PPE gear. Because when it first started, we, we really didn't have anything. Any equipment whatsoever was limited. So we wanted to use that as a protection method. A couple of days later, uh, and naturally, there was concern of what's going on in our community. We can't get any information from the Department of Health. I started to publish a nightly list. And just so you know, there were four cases in Daytona Beach. There were 11 cases in the land. And then every night we would update that list of addresses, not addresses, but the, the number of cases that were removed from the list or added to the list so people can get a feel for what was going on in their cities. And I think I remember you saying when, when you weren't able to get that information for first responders, if you didn't have it, you were going to send your guys and women in full hazmat gear to every place. Because if you didn't know where the COVID was, you couldn't take a chance. That, that was the, when the Department of Health shut down the information. They, they, that, that was their response to me. Dress them up in PPE gear 12 hours a day. And then just let every call they respond to, they need to be dressed like that. And, and I thought that that was unconscionable. It was, it was just not correct. And my response to them, it was, you know, I learned something a long time ago as a cop in Philadelphia. When there's trouble getting the information, it's because the information is troubling. That's, that's what, that was my, my message to them. You don't want us, us meaning us, the community, to get this information because it's going to, your political agenda is going to be destroyed. This information, parents need it, grandparents need it. We need it to protect ourselves to see what's going on because nobody should trust the, trust the government. And I am part of the government. You should always be looking and challenging and get information you need to protect yourself and your family. Amen. I feel like we should leave it right there, but I have other questions. That was exactly what I was saying up here, too, was that we needed to know which nursing homes had COVID because families needed to be able to make decisions. But at that point, we were being told they couldn't give the information out because of HIPAA. But HIPAA doesn't apply, like you were arguing, to general numbers, it applies to personal health information. And so I was really glad to hear you say that and glad to have you on our team fighting to get the information out. Pam, when you started that, your, your, your crusade to get that information was happened almost at this exact same time that I had people calling me saying, I can't get information about my mother, my mom, my dad. They're in a nursing home and they refuse to give me information. And I just thought that, what are you doing? 
you know, I have my loved one in an assisted living facility. I'm paying good money and you're telling me I can't see them and you're not going to give me any information on what's going on there. And they, same thing, HIPAA. And I was like, that's BS. And that's what I said. Hey, there's a lawyer suing to, to get right. this information out to these families. That's right. And that led to a lot of additional information. Um, I think your words about the first responders really had an effect, though. Is there still information that you'd like your first responders and the public to have related to COVID? Right now, uh, we're, we're in, a, in, a, in a tug of war with the Volusia County School District. The Volusia County School District has decided in its infinite wisdom that they were not going to release any information about COVID-19 in their schools. And they put an, an order out forbidding any employee from talking about COVID-19. And, and when I saw that, I almost fell out of my chair. Like, number, number one, what are you doing? And in Volusia County, there's a large segment of the population that are grandparents. So we're in that high-risk category, raising their grandkids. So you're going to put them at risk. And who are you to trample on somebody's First Amendment rights to talk about what's going on inside of their schools? From a personal note, my, my nephew goes to high school in South Carolina, and my sister, his mom, got an email on Saturday morning from her school district that said, hey, just to let you know, in Kyle's lunch period and his English class, two kids have COVID-19, and here's a list of suggestions that you need to do. I thought, that's fantastic. As a parent, I, I, that's great information for me to know. But yet, right. for some reason, the, you know, the Department of Health and now the school board think that they could sit on this information. And I just think it's, it's horrendous. I'm with you, and I'm hoping that there'll be some change there. Well, now our listeners know why you are my current favorite sheriff in the state of Florida. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Sheriff Chitwood, and uh, stay safe out there. Pam, it was an honor and a pleasure to meet with you and talk to you and all your listeners. Stay safe and God blesses. Thank you. You too. Remember, the First Amendment Foundation is a nonprofit and depends on support from the public. If you care about the work we do, please go to our website and become a member. When you support us, you support you. 